Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. Dave Cohen will be along in a moment. And today we are speaking to a right royal duke of British comedy and plenty of transatlantic stuff too. Type the name Jimmy Marvel into IMDb and it practically explodes with great British comedy. An actor turned writer and producer, exec producer and co-founder of Hattrick Productions, which has made all kinds of modern classics like Father Ted and Outnumbered and Derry Girls. He knows about comedy and what he doesn't know probably can't be known. We were honoured to run our script competition with him and Hattrick. And here's what happened when we were able to grab half an hour with him. It contains some slightly strong language in places. Enjoy. Hi, Jimmy. Welcome to Sitcom Geeks. Thanks very much for uh, agreeing to join us today. Thank you. Um, we thought we'd like to start with, uh, with we'd like to go way back and... Um, <laughs> A question uh, we like to ask uh, guests is um, what uh, were the shows that you were kind of watching and listening to uh, as a kid that made you want to go into comedy? Right. OK. Wow. OK. Well, it was um, I was born in Liverpool in the mid 50s. Um, so that's how old I am. And um, and I guess my first interaction with the thrill of um, comedy and performing, actually, ironically, was the pantomimes at the Liverpool Empire. And I saw, you know, people like Morecambe and Wise um, and Ken Dodd, of course, uh, doing their stuff. And uh, just that kind of feeling of being in a large theatre where people just laughing themselves sick at a guy on stage. Um, and in those days, of course, it was mainly guys on stage. And um, uh, yeah, it became, I became quite obsessed with it. And so I was always in school plays and things and loved the, I had a very, I had a very bad stammer as a kid. And uh, when I was on stage, um, the stammer disappeared. So it was kind of even more addictive. Wow. Is that, is that a thing? Is that like a known thing? Uh, I, I never kept it a secret. I mean, I, um, I know other performers who do have those kind of speech dissonances Um um, I know that Rowan, Rowan and Atkinson has a, has a slight stammer, which, um, uh, you know, is not apparent in his comedy, or if it is, he uses it to create comic effect. Um, and uh, yes, I, I, so I, I, and then on TV, I mean, it was, because in, in those days, it was wall-to-wall sitcom on the BBC on Wednesdays and Thursdays. And uh, there would be a, you know, a, let's, and let's be honest, they weren't all great. Um, yeah, you know, and uh, I remember Terry and June wasn't necessarily my favourite show, um, but there were other shows like, um, you know, the rise and fall of Reggie Perrin, and then there's Porridge, and then some of these, you know, obviously Faulty Towers. Um, these were all shows that I uh, that really inspired me. And uh, when I left university, I, I got into university, and I got into this thing called the Footlights. Um, which kind of was a boot camp in comedy, how to, how to, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get my dog out of the room. Because he's <laughs> okay, ignoring, thank you. Ignoring on a bone. Okay. And this might be funny to leave in, but um, I'm actually going to take him out because the bone will get louder and louder okay. and I'll be, I'll be fighting my pet. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're definitely going to leave that in. Come on. Come on, I'm, I'm <laughs> Yeah, the dog is now outside munching his bone. Um, so a comic moment there early Absolutely. on. Absolutely, thank you very much for yeah, that. Yes. At what uh, point, um, for you, was it so... So you, you went to university and maybe, and I guess, got into performing. For you, was yeah. it... So for me, it was always... 
I didn't really feel like I needed to get laughs and I was more interested in the writing. But for some people, yeah. they get on stage, they get a laugh and holy moly, they're hooked. And that's what they want yeah. for the rest of their lives. Which, yeah. where, where were you on that scale? I was definitely a performer, performer stroke writer. Um, and I teamed up with Rory McGrath, of course, at university. And we then became very involved with Footlights and kind of ran Footlights in that final year in 1977. And Rory was the writer. I mean, Rory, I mean, he's a good performer as well, but he... He was a brilliant, he is a brilliant writer and he used to write these comic monologues, which would bring the house down. Um, and of course then, you know, after university, we bummed around for a while. We formed our own uh, sketch group called An Evening Without, which was a poster idea, um, just an evening without and a list of people we just didn't like. And, um, uh, and uh, that was, a, that was uh, Rory, myself, Clive Anderson, Griff Reese Jones with Peter Fincham on the piano which we never stopped reminding him. <laughs> um, and every now and again, we'd even entice Emma Thompson to come out. She, I think she came up to our gig at the Derby Playhouse um, and kind of saved us by, you know, she can sing like a, like a, like an angel as well. So she's got a, a great singing voice. Um, and we did that for, you know, for a while. And then Rory and I got offered um, the writer's bursary at BBC Radio Entertainment, Light Entertainment in 78, 79. And so we embedded ourselves in BBC radio comedy, which was where I first met Dave um, in that corridor where, you know, I produced a show called Week Ending, which was like a, just a, a boot camp for being a comedy producer where you each week have to turn a half an hour of topical humour. You know, you know. Yeah. And in fact, that that whole kind of uh, period of um, of um, BBC Radio and the, the the words boot camp are good because I mean whether you were a writer or a producer or a performer, um, you, you know you you were kind of churning uh, shows out really, weren't you? And yeah. um, I I just wondered if you thought the pro the process of creating shows. Do you think it's got uh, much harder now, or what? Or was it sort of just? It's different, isn't it, now, Dave? Because yeah. what happens now is if you're a young performer. Um, you don't have to wait for someone to die at the BBC before you get your opportunity. <laughs> you can actually um, just go online. Or kill them. <laughs> kill them. But, you know, you just go online and you do your stuff. I mean, we found people, at, you know, Hatchet, we found younger performers online doing stuff where you think, God, they're really good. And uh, and then the journey from how do you get from YouTube onto telly is, you know, often fraught with all kinds of difficulties. But I think now there's no hesit there's no barrier to publish your work. Um, it's still a matter of, you know, the quality and uh, uh, being able to maybe people sometimes get their opportunities too soon and, and, and they, you know, they, they, they burn out a bit too soon. But, you know, I think those days, were, I mean, that corridor was great. That, that 19, late 70s corridor of BBC Light Entertainment, where at one end of the corridor, you had these very well-established older producers. I say older, they're only in their 40s, but they seem to us as old as God. And then beyond the fire door, there was a bunch of young producers, beginning with Douglas Adams who was about to leave the business because he was a terrible radio producer and he was fed up with, you know, getting nowhere fast because he couldn't really adapt the way he wrote to writing episodes of, you know, Doctor in the House or he couldn't write on Weekending, he didn't quite get it. And then on his way out of the business, he was going to get a job in exports, I think. He, he said, I've given this script to a producer. He named the producer and we all threw our hands up and said, why have you given it to him? Unfortunately, Jeffrey Perkins, who was a brilliant young producer, who was also in that department, intercepted the script. <laughs> and that script was, of course, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And then the rest is, as they say, history. And, and Douglas found his voice in that moment of, on the point, point of giving up, he found his voice and went on to become this, well, it was a genius. Yeah. 
piece of work, you know, and, and he was a bit of a genius, was Douglas. And beyond, beyond Douglas, there was John Lloyd, who was kind of head boy. And uh, he was the, very much the golden boy of radio. And uh, he was off to TV to create Not the Nine O'Clock News. And then next to him in the office was Griffrey Jones, who, uh, you know, at university, we all thought he was going to become the next director of the National Theatre because Griff directed all the big shows at Cambridge but actually um, was a very good radio producer. And like I say, you spend a couple of years in Footlights, you know how to just, it becomes a body memory of how to put a running orders together of a sketch show of mm. what works, what doesn't work. And because you're having to do it to put it in front of an audience and audiences in the end are the greatest teacher because, you know, as Robert McKee says in his film lectures, when he comes to the genre of comedy, he begins that section by saying, these guys who write comedy have my utmost respect because if you write a bad drama, you can always find something in it you like. If you write a bad comedy, no one laughs and you're dead. Yeah. This is why the people involved in comedy, in my view, are the angriest motherfuckers <laughs> you're ever going to Think about the language they use. Gags. Yeah. Punchlines. I killed them tonight. I mean, I these died people, on stage. Yeah. yeah, these people are maniacs, he says. Yeah. And, uh, and there's elements of truth in that. And then, and then going around that corridor, you had me, you had Rory McGrath, Guy Jenkins, and me and a broom cupboard at the end. We were the kind of indentured uh, staff writers. And then Jeffrey Perkins. And there we all were. And at the time, I didn't realise how fortunate I was. But I was so fortunate to be cooking gently in that atmosphere. And then every week, when you're a weekending producer on a Wednesday, Dave will, will, will know this, that we'd, we'd bring the writers in off the, you know, they come from everywhere. Mm. And we talk about the week's news and trying to make it funny and on a friday i'd go to the studio with a script and there'd be david jason and uh St sheila stiefel and bill wallace and and um oh my god i've forgotten his other david david what was his tate. name david, david tate. tate brilliant brilliant voice actor and a lovely man and um uh and then we'd knock out a show and put it out and it would go out on friday nights i mean that was just instantaneous you know comedy making in the raw and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't um and uh, but it was a great, great training. And in fact, what I realized was there's nothing more important than getting the script right and then casting it right. And once you've got those two elements right, yes, makeup and wardrobe are really interesting. But in the end, if you haven't got those two elements right, you're not going to go anywhere. It's all about lining things up, isn't it? I was really interested by what you just said there about um, about Douglas Adams, how this great comedy voice didn't didn't know who he was or how he was funny. And just blending that with that thing where you you know you've seen stuff on YouTube and you can see something but you can see it's probably not in the right uh, framing this isn't quite working but there's something there how do you recognize there's something there and how you know how are you able to sort of point to in the right direction but how are people able to kind of do that for themselves do you think well i wish i could give you the answer to that but i mean the truth is if anybody on one of these podcasts or in any interview or anything says they they know what i mean i there was once a, a, a short-lived BBC controller who came and went, really. And, um, but they called us in for a, a meeting. And um, it's the kind of th meeting where you have where you've got the talent, you've got the writers, you've got the producers, you've got the head of the, head of the genre, you've got the controller in the room. It's got to be a meeting where they say, we love the pilot, let's do a series. And this controller had not got that email. They, you know, they just hadn't got the, they just hadn't been on the course. Um, and so this person then <laughs> began the meeting by saying, yeah, I thought, you know, I thought the pilot was really good and, you know, very satirical, uh, but they said, and then said, um, 
But you know, the thing about satire is... Ooh, alarm bells. And I said, hang on a minute. I said, I want to get a pen and a pad. I want to write this down. Because <laughs> I don't know what the thing about satire is. Please enlighten me. And the truth is, I don't know. I mean, we did a show called Outnumbered. And it took a year to, to, to get people to, to see what we were seeing in, in, in terms of... And we only did that because in the end, we got so frustrated with the process of... And I can understand it. You're selling a comedy show in the medium of words on a page or words out of someone's mouth into their ear, you're not experiencing the show as you'll experience it once it gets made, which is visually on telly with all the bells and whistles. So in the end, we convinced the BBC to put some money with our money, and we gave Andy Hamilton and Guy Jenkins enough to go away and make a taster tape in Guy Jenkins' house. And what they did is they put the work in on finding those kids, and then they got Hugh Dennis and Claire Skinner, who they knew, and they knew were kind of great actors and could cope. Um, and they put together a 10-minute taster tape we showed it to Peter Finch, and we then said, oh, I see what you mean. And that moment of, oh, I see what you mean, is the moment you want to get to when you're selling a comedy, because then you're all aligned. But try to convince someone someone's going to be, how, how, do you, how do you convince someone that something's going to be funny by just talking to them about, well, you can make them laugh. I always say, if you're going to pitch a comedy, make sure there are a few laughs when you're pitching it. Otherwise, <laughs> That's not an unreasonable request, really, is it? Yeah. Well, be surprised. I once again was pitching something to the BBC, a BBC comedy drama written by guy actually and the, the executive who we we, we was given to us to look after us came in and sat next to us i'd never met this person before and i said to them are you okay and they said yeah I said, have you had a recent death in the family he said no i said well fucking well cheer up because we're about to pitch a comedy show <laughs> at least at least fix a grin to your face and look as though i've seen more life in the eyes of something on a fishmonger's fucking slab and um, you just want to create an atmosphere in the room of confidence that these people are funny, they know what they're talking about. And uh, But, you know, outnumbered is a great lesson to me that, that in the end we needed to convince them in the medium in which they would be, you know, buying the show, which is the television medium. So we now, you say things have changed, we now make more taster tapes than we've ever done before because we just think if we can, you know, get a scene on the go, go away and film it simply and give them the feeling, like you said, it's like, given the feeling of, of that show. Now, Douglas Adams was very fortunate that Jeffrey Perkins in, intercepted the script because Jeffrey was a brilliant producer. He then went to the Radiophonic Workshop and created a whole world, a universe for Douglas to play in. Had it been given to another producer who may have just actually had a bloke with some coconut shells walking on gravel in the corner of the, of the studio, it may have been a very different, rather prosaic offering. So all these things come together in making a hit show. I would say it is like catching a catching lightning in a bottle, you know. And I, I, I we, we did a, a show called Episodes, where, you know, uh, written by David Crane, who wrote Friends, and and Jeffrey Claric. And of course, it was about the making of a comedy show. And um, and in the show, you know, one of them says, you know, a million things can go wrong when you're making a comedy show. A million things you don't know, and you don't even know it's going wrong when you're in that moment. It's going wrong, and then it goes wrong, and it's too late. And it's on the screen. And that little crack that we saw in the development is now the Grand Canyon on, on screen. And you're toast, you know. Um, there's a scene in episodes where the two English writers are in a writing room in America and they're having to work for someone they don't like who's also an English writer who's not very good. And he's saying, maybe we should take the joke about the boat out of this scene. And Tamsin Gregg says, no, she snaps her pencil. No, no, no. If we take that joke out, 
There are no jokes in the scene. You've taken all the other jokes out. It's just exposition. And he looks at her and smiles very patronizingly and says, oh, you sweet old thing. That's so old fashioned. Comedies don't have to be funny these days. They've just got to be half an hour long. <laughs> That's uh, that little trigger phrase. And uh, you see it occasionally in reviews now. Comedies don't have to be funny. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Jimmy. It gets even better, so do listen all the way to the end. But just a quick parish notice. I'm running a webinar on Tuesday the 26th of April at 6pm UK time that you can be part of. It's all about finding that right plot for that pilot script. That's how you really kickstart your sitcom. So if you want to find out more about that, sign up for that and you'll be sent a PDF with some stuff about a sitcom that has been created for training purposes called Big Day that you, you'll be able to look at and then pitch some stories in the webinar. So it'll be like you're actually in a writer's room getting experience and also it should be great fun. It's pay what you like so you can be part of it for as little as a quid. There might be a link in the show notes or else go to my blog sitcomgeek.blogspot.com and you should see it there. Okay, that's enough from me. Back to Jimmy. But I'd like I'd like to pick up that you know you've mentioned so far uh, like Rory and uh, and Jeffrey Perkins as yeah. well and uh, and I'm thinking also that Michael Fenton Stevens who was kind of one uh, kind of from your your yes. era and this thing that you've got these people who are creative people who end up in the sorts of jobs like you have and Jeffrey was yeah. controller of BBC comedy uh, and that kind of that there's you know you are you, you are the man now <laughs> you were you were writing you know you, like you say you were in the little uh, mm. little room off the call uh, off the corridor and in yeah. your little uh, group of, of creative people you know making exciting stuff that and 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 you know, ruffling the feathers or whatever, but but then you became uh, those people, and I, I'm just very interested to know how you kind of how it sits. And I know you know how do I live with myself? <laughs> how how does I one... don't really know what he's uh, asking. Do I, 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 yeah. Dave, Dave, no. Dave, what is this? I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. I remember, I remember when Jeffrey was head of comedy at the BBC, and you know, it was sort of like he went from being Jeffrey Perkins and I'd worked with him on shows like Spitting Image and things and, and just, just just this amazing creative mind and and he became this person who just spent his the rest of his that time in meetings you know and it just... well that's true I mean that, and that can happen and also you know then you're representing the BBC and I remember being on a panel with Jeffrey who was one of the nicest people anyway and um, much less opinionated well he, he, he was very opinionated but he managed to keep a lot of them to himself and I was on a panel and the panel's about, you know, every now and again, BAFTA have this panel like the future of British sitcom. You know, so it's like a, they wheel it out. And I was on a panel with uh, Jeffrey Perkins representing the UC, Seanad Williams representing ITV. Then we had then Jessica Stevens, as she, Steve, as she was then, Stevenson. Um, um, now Hines, isn't it? Yeah, Jessica Hines, yeah. And then Graham Linehan was sitting next to me. So the five of us. And then... So we do our little piece and then we take questions from the floor. And this guy says, I sent, I want to talk to Jeffrey Perkins. I sent a script to the BBC about nine months ago and I got a slip, a rejection slip. I don't even know if anyone read it. It's a disgrace the way you treat new writers, blah, blah. So Jeffrey says, look, I'm really sorry about that. Why don't you send it to me? Uh, afterwards, I'll give you my, you know, my details and I'll read it. I'll read it personally. 
He said, and also I was talking, Shona Wills, I got the same reaction from ITV. You know, I got, oh, it's not quite right for us. I mean, what's that all about? So she also apologized on behalf of ITV and said, you know, I'm really sorry, please send it to me. And they said, I sent it to Hattrick. I said, look, before you start, before you start, I said, have you ever considered that what you've written is total shit? <laughs> and that maybe people rejected it on those grounds, but were too nice to tell you. And I said, Graham here on my right, you may not remember, but he wrote a show um, uh, um, for Channel 4, which is about artists on the left bank. I think it's... Ne Paris. It's Paris. Name, yeah. it, I said, I can't even remember its name, I said, but it's about <laughs> Alexis Sale. I said, and it tanked. I said, it was, it was absolutely terrible. And Graham said, hang on, it wasn't that bad. I said, Graham, <laughs> bear, bear with me on this story. I said, Graham's response wasn't to moan about it to people who, who, who cancelled his show. The following year, he wrote a show called Father Ted, which thankfully he brought a hat trick. I said, and that became a comedy classic. See, Graham's a writer, and maybe you're a guy who just likes to moan about things. <laughs> right? Because that's also the truth, is that, you know, is that it's hard writing, and it's hard writing comedy. And, God, my heart goes out to people who put a pen to paper when you know when commissioner says well it kind of writes itself it fucking doesn't write itself. <laughs> i can vouch for that yeah it doesn't yeah. admit it can be my my oldest son wants to be you know wants to be a, a comedy writer and i said to him you know just get used to gut-wrenching disappointment make it your bedfellow because it's going to be there all the time uh, i said and you have to enjoy the journey you have to enjoy the people you're working with you have to enjoy the downs as well as the ups you know it's a it's a life and uh, and you'll meet great people and uh, and you'll meet some complete assholes. <laughs> and, and the thing is, it's it's the rich tapestry of our lives. I'm a, one drama producer once said to me, very posh guy, so I'm thinking of getting my company into comedy, and I was wondering if you had any tips. I said, well, have you had the requisite amount of psychological damage as a child? <laughs> and he said, no, I had a very happy childhood. I said, well, you're fucking me. <laughs> you, you need to have a few kind of traumas in very formative years to be working, to be working out this shit in your adult life. Um, and I do, you know, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate. I have worked with some amazingly gifted uh, people and some of them are quite complicated, but you know, that's the name of the game. It feels different now, but going back to that panel, which must've been uh, eight, nine years ago, depending on oh, the, the personnel, longer, yeah. we, we keep coming around because we're in this sort of weird situation where, the traditional mainstream sitcom is apparently sort of dead. And yet people keep watching Frasier on Channel 4. I mean, Channel 4 is, shows three episodes of Frasier every single day. Um, and people are still watching, um, you know, for about three My or family. four years. Three or four yeah, years, Dad's still... Army was yeah, Dad's Army was getting the best ratings for a comedy on BBC Two year in, year out for a long time recently. Um, and now with Netflix and streaming... And this new grammar of television, the fact that you get box sets and that people will watch the first episode and decide if they're going to watch the next 15. It's all kind of different now. So it feels like asking that question about the future, the, the present and future of the sitcom, asking it now feels like it's probably got an answer we're not really sure about. Do, do you have any reflections on that? He says, asking him, what's the situation with the sitcom? Well, I think I think that, you know, for example, we are in the middle of producing a second season of a show called Kate and Koji with Brenda Blethyn for ITV, 
which you know did well it was locked down you know people weren't going out so but it did remarkably well it did well you know uh, um, critically and uh, written by Andy Hamilton and Guy Jenkins so yes it's a traditional sitcom set in a cafe which is that classic kind of sit for the com but it's about an asylum seeker so it has a kind of contemporary edge to it but it's full of jokes because it has to be because if you've got 200 people watching your show live in an audience you have to make them laugh you know probably three times a minute uh, to keep them interested um but i think let's be honest that plays to an older demographic than the way young people are watching comedy my son i have three sons and they all watch a load of tv comedy but they watch it you know it's all single camera and they'll watch it they'll you know over a weekend they'll watch it wall to wall so they you know they hoover up the repeats of peep show um and you know i remember in the year 2000 ish having a conversation with bbc saying i think single camera is where it's going i think people now if you think about the way we like i told you my first experience of comedy was in the empire theater in liverpool a proscenium arch with people laughing so i'm happy watching audience sitcoms it's on my hard disk it doesn't pull me out of the moments that i'm watching a tv show where other people i can't see are laughing at it in the same room as the actors however Cut to the late 80s, young people growing up in the late 80s, their experience of comedy, first experience of comedy, is mum and dad going down to the video store and bringing back a Steve Martin comedy or a Ben Stiller comedy and watching it without any laughter at all. And that's on their hard disk when they're seven, eight, nine, ten years of age. So 10 years later, when they're young adults, sure, they're going to watch single, single uh, camera yeah. comedy and be slightly thrown by the fact that people are laughing at it. So I think it's it's a it's a you're right things have changed and um, but I still I don't still I still think there's no there's no there's no um, there's no substitute for writing a really funny show and you know the guy around Showtime said we love having episodes on it because it's a comedy that makes you laugh and sometimes we have comedies that are really interesting well done thoughtful and um, but they're not that funny so you know having your cake and eating it is having a really interesting show with a very powerful engine, but actually lots of really smart jokes in it. Um, and, you know, in the end, not, nothing's going to replace that. I don't think, um, I mean, look at the show like modern family, that was a mainstream show, but you know, the way they constructed it is they made sure that the, the, the gags, the visual gags and the character gags were pretty regularly done. Like a, if you played that show to an audience, you'd have got laughs, mm. you know? I think that when I watch uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine, uh, I just think this is yeah. this this is a show that ten, 15, well, fifteen years ago, this just would have been an audience show. Yeah. My my kids just will not watch an audience show. I've tried everything, although actually, with one exception, which was uh, Miranda. Oh, there we go. So there you go, James. <laughs> there we go. Um, I had a hand so, in those. Um, <laughs> well, actually, just but just going back to that before we move on. Uh, so uh, Richard Hurst and I wrote uh, Bluestone 4-2 for BBC Three, yes. and but we wrote that with the rhythm of a studio show. It's just you can't yeah. film a show about bomb disposal in Afghanistan in a studio. <laughs> it can't be done, especially if you're actually going to have explosions. Uh, yeah. So we tried to have that rhythm, but it was but we knew that that actually everything's changed. It, it can just have its own. And, and Mash was as it was. I mean, it's sort of Mash. It had a studio feel to it, but that didn't seem weird at the time in the 70s, pretending to be Vietnam, technically about Korea. Um, it kind of created its own grammar. But I guess the thing that's universal to all of these shows, including 
Kate and Koji and uh, Modern Family is they're about something. Yeah. And I think that so we're reading lots of scripts in a competition that you very kindly yes. put up prize money for and, and, and helped uh, organize. And I guess our main problem is the reason that a script doesn't go anywhere is often not lack of jokes. It's just this isn't anything. Yeah. This is a. Well, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. And at the, I've just actually seen uh, the first two edits of the uh, next series of Derry Girls. Oh, so this morning. And that's laugh out loud funny, and it's about something. You're absolutely right. It's about how do you grow up in a world where it's kind of falling apart? And uh, of course, in this season, the peace process is underway, so there's hope, and um, so there's a different feel. But but the, you know, it is definitely about something. And there are moments in the show. I said this morning is that I laughed and then I I cry. You know, I, it it made me well up. That it was because you realise, oh my god it's really about something rather important. These people are living through things which are, you know, which were historical. Mm. Um, and and so life and death, as you, you yeah, know, talked yeah. about earlier, literally. And, and I, I, just interesting to pick, pick up on Derry Girls, because that's uh, that feels to me like a case study. I mean, you talk, you, you've worked a lot with Andy and Guy, and yes. you know, you've, you've worked with the, those same, the, your, your same crowd, and you all sort of came through together. But one thing Haptrick has done and one thing this competition is doing is about, about bringing on new writers. And I'd be interesting to know, interested to know how, you know, the, the, the kind of genesis of Derry Girls, where, how it came to you and what you did, what Haptrick did to that, and, well, and then how it got to Channel 4. I think, you know, on the issue of Derry Girls, that arrived, that's one of those, like, it fell out of heaven, really, because it landed on my desk fully formed. And Lisa McGee, had written for Channel 4 uh, London Irish, uh, which was a really good show. Um, and they wanted to do more work with her and they commissioned uh, uh, what was to become Derry Girls. And she was working with Liz Lewin and Caroline Leddy, who are two brilliant producers and especially, you know, in terms of script. So the three of them actually, I think the three of them were kind of auditioning companies to do it with. And thankfully, thank God they brought it here. and. Uh, it's been an absolute joy, you know. I mean, when you, when I get scripts like that, and you start reading those scripts, and you, you start turning the pages, it's um, it's so thrilling. And well, you know, it's like you're laughing and you're being. I said, I said to someone today on a call who's working with a new writer, I said, you know, I just watch Derry Girls, and each line seems to, you know, not only be funny, but it deepens the character and it moves the plot along at the same time. It does those three things where. You're laughing, you're being told something important about the character, and oh my God, what's going to happen next? That's great writing. She crams in so much. I said to her this morning, you cram in so much plot into your 22 and a half minutes. It's extraordinary, which Andy and Guy used to do with Drop the Dead Donkey. I say, how do you manage to get three plots into 22 and a half minutes? Um, uh, so it's, you know, and it's a craft, as you guys know. It's not something uh, that you arrive with. It's something that you you really have to work at. Yeah. In a way, you're like, just trying to express that idea in the best way you can. But then it's like, great, now you've got to write 12 of them. <laughs> yeah. Off off you go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's about having the kind of personal stamina and construct, which is why the American system, as you guys know, is that it's it, it, it does um, offer up more apprenticeship opportunities than our system of comedy writers where, you know, all right, you might write six episodes, but, you know, you're a young writer or you're a new writer. And you know how do you get how do you get the how do you get the mentorship how do you get the access? It's really really hard. But if you're a young writer or a new writer in 
Hollywood and you get the job of making the tea for Steve Levitan, then maybe in six months time, it will allow you in the room to sit with the other writers. And then by osmosis, if you're any good, you start to learn your craft without having to expose your, your ignorance or your lack of expertise, because you can slowly cook in that, in that room. Um, and that's why they've got so many really good writers. I have to say, they've got many, many good writers out there, um, but still, they still say, but we need ideas people. We need people who have the, the big idea. Yeah, uh, it's, so, it's almost so, a separate skill, isn't it? I mean, I was yeah. reflecting on this about, because you know, there's, there's a thing over there of spec scripts and that you write a sample script of an existing show to show that you've got the craft. But actually coming up with a show that could be, you know, I mean, every episode sort of the same, uh, for a hundred coming up with that is like a skill that's to one side of actually writing the mechanics of a and so it's like okay here you go here you go new writer do both now yeah. go yeah it's crushing yeah it's crushing um you know i i work with jeb mercurio in a different genre and uh you know and the whole debate around unpacking those kind of thrillers how to let the story out you know it's not blowing it all at once. And then, and then you have to do it, you know, each week you're doing it. You're having to kind of draw the audience in, leave them hanging at the end. It's, it's a craft. It's not, you know, I, I don't believe in inspiration. I really don't believe in it. I believe that if you are, like I said, you're psychologically attuned to wanting to be a comedy writer, good luck. And then you have to get on with it and you learn by experience and by trial and error, a lot of error. And you just have to keep going. If you enjoy the journey and you've got the resilience, then you keep going. And I said to my someone, I said, look, if you're lucky, you just started. I said, if you're lucky in a few years time, you might get someone to read the script. And that's the truth is that it's really hard. So you really have to want it, I think. Um, otherwise, I think it'd be a heartbreaking kind of job. Yeah. And the thing I often say is no one asked you to do this. <laughs> it's yeah. like, this was your idea. So yeah. uh, you could just go and work in a bank Um if you want, um, yeah. but it gives a bit of perspective. We've probably got time for uh, one more question before we have to let you go. Uh, Dave, what have you got? Um, well, actually, well, I just want, was curious to know what your thoughts were about the current state of British TV uh, and uh, where, you know, would would you take, uh, have you ever been offered the job of comedy, BBC comedy commissioner? Um, no, I, 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 you know oh, what? Really? I'm, oh. I'm, I'm, well, on the grounds that it's quite clear I'm unemployable. Okay. Uh, what would you What would you do though if you were handed the reins of uh, of of TV, British TV, uh, Channel Four, Channel Four, BBC, particularly in great flux at the moment? What would you What What, what do you think is the, the solution now? Well, I might go back on the drink for a start, <laughs> um, and uh, but what I would do is I talk. I talk. I mean, actually, I, I do think the current regime at BBC Comedy are are pretty good. I'm very hopeful, John John Petrie. Is talking to producers, which John does. Mm. I mean, John, John and I have spoken. You know, is to get out of the BBC, go and talk to producers about what's happening, and maybe take a few risks on producers rather than over managing them. Actually, just empower them because there's no question that if the BBC said to a good producer, "All right, we're going to give you six half hours of a show, knock yourself out," they wouldn't just lay awake at night worrying about it. Whereas it's a human thing. If you're over managed, of course, you tend to get quite kind of resentful about that. Mm. So I, I think that, um, listen, listen, it's really hard. And comedy is really hard to commission. I think this is why commissioning editors or commissioning organisations like the BBC and ITV, they worry about comedy because it is expensive for the half hour. It's more expensive than doing a, doing a, a show about cooking 
or you know yeah. um, repairing things. And when it doesn't work, it's horrible. It is. It it, it isn't just that you failed. Is you've taken a shit in everybody's living room. <laughs> now, people resent that. <laughs> they don't they like it. it. They don't like <laughs> it. Wanting to laugh, and what you've done is you've made them feel that life is not worth living. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> but I think just going back full circle. Back in the old days when, you know, we were sitting on the floor watching TV, you mentioned the fact that there were lots of sitcoms on that weren't that great. But in a way, that was possibly the secret, because to get really good ones, you need quite a lot of not exactly. that great ones. So whenever, I, sitcoms. So, so whenever I get a journalist ring me up every few years saying, you know, that on the death of British sitcoms, I say, listen, oh, but things aren't, aren't the way they were in the 70s. I said, listen, the fact is there were more sitcoms, but there were still the same amount of good ones as there are now. Yeah, the good ones actually stood out amongst the terrible ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, well, we're hoping to find a good one with this competition, yes. and with, luck, we're so us. thankful for helping us do that. So we'll get back to you with some scripts. Thanks so yeah. much good for your time, Jimmy. We're really All grateful. Right, James. God bless, Cheers, Dave. All the best, mate. Bye bye. Bye bye.